to Intelligent Machines and Medicine, conversations about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Adria Hoffman, and I invite you to join us as we explore the potential of AI in medicine and the big questions that guide our work. Dr. Demaladia Dadeen Shewo is an assistant professor of medicine in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. She's a senior associate consultant in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine. In addition to her MD, she earned a master's in public health, specializing in epidemiology and global health. She also holds a certificate in AI and machine learning. And prior to joining Mayo six years ago, she completed a research fellowship at the CDC. In addition to discussing the really compelling research that she's currently conducting in Nigeria, we also talked about the role of AI and machine learning in healthcare more broadly, and the advances and opportunities that it presents. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. How did you first become interested in AI and machine learning in healthcare? It's probably lots of different things. So my pathway into working with AI is probably different from others. So for me, my interest during my fellowship training, I knew that I wanted to um, work with academic cardiology. I knew that I did not want to make an impact just on a one-to-one patient level, but I wanted to be able to make a broader impact in patient care, should I say, on a large scale. And, you know, the traditional pathway for that is, oh, you think about uh, public health. How can you, you know, get involved in policy or what kind of research projects can you do that can affect people on a large scale? So now to come back to your question, AI I would say I almost kind of stumbled into it. So my current mentor, Dr. Peter Noseworthy, was visiting Florida during uh, my last year of fellowship training, and I got the opportunity to meet with him. And he kind of talked about a lot of cool stuff they were working on then. They were trying to basically develop an algorithm using ECG data that is gathered from sort of like a wearable outfit, like a shirt or a jacket to gather data for outcome prediction. And I'm like, this is so cool. This is the kind of stuff I wanna work on. I wanna be at the cutting edge of things that we can do using novel digital technologies to improve you know, the health of our patients. Now from um, a clinical standpoint, I am interested in women's cardiovascular health. And as we know, When it comes to cardiovascular health and cardiovascular disease in women, it is really understudied, tends to be under-recognized as well as under-treated. So I felt like there was a role for us to use some of these novel technologies, not just to gather data among women, but also improve or target interventions specifically for women. So that's kind of how my research question came up. So a team of physicians and researchers at Mayo Clinic were able to develop an algorithm that takes data from the 12-lead ECG to predict the likelihood of having heart failure. And this algorithm had been tested in different patient populations, but not specifically among women. And I'm like, 
this is an opportunity that we need to do, but women included. And I really wanted to look at the pregnancy period as well as the postpartum period, which is a critical time window for development of heart failure because it tends to be recognized late. So we decided that that was going to be the research question. And can we take this tool and apply to this patient population? This is really interesting on a couple of levels for me. So one, the history of women being excluded from clinical trials and research in medicine, and particularly women of childbearing years. So to be able to actually focus on cardiovascular health of pregnant women is fascinating. Yes, I agree with you. And I think that this historical exclusion goes way back. Some believe that this might could be traced back to the thalidomide tragedy. So this has to do with um, a drug that was being marketed for a management of um, morning sickness during pregnancy. And it was actually being marketed in multiple different countries. The US, I believe, never really quite gave um, approval for the drug to be used in the United States. But this drug, not long after it was rolled out and being marketed, they found out that it was actually responsible for causing birth defects in children, and it was actually labeled one of the worst clinical research disasters of all time. So I think that stemming from that, there was kind of um, uh, a need at the time to protect women of childbearing age, protect the unborn child. And there was actually policies that went into place that women of childbearing age should be excluded from, you know, clinical trials and studies like this. And I feel like that could have been one of the reasons how this started. But then, of course, this got expanded into every other study. People worry about the potential impact on women, particularly women of childbearing age. And it sort of became a thing that is no longer now an advantage, but almost like a disadvantage to women, because now we don't have a lot of evidence in cardiovascular clinical trials that actually included women. So a lot of the things that we do, and we always call this evidence-based medicine, is based on trials and studies that included predominantly men. So we're kind of doing women a disservice now by not including them in the studies. And I do believe that, you know, the NIH recognized this a long time ago, and it is established an office specifically to drive and improve enrollment of women in clinical trials and studies that are funded by the NIH. So over time, we've seen an improvement in the inclusion of women in trials in general, but in the cardiovascular disease space, they're still underrepresented. So tell me a little bit more about this project and what you've been able to accomplish. So yes, so like I said, our research question is we wanted to see if we can evaluate this tool to see if it would be useful for identifying cardiomyopathy, or also sometimes referred to as heart failure during pregnancy and the postpartum period. The reason why this is important is because common symptoms that we see with heart failure can overlap with normal pregnancy symptoms. So if a woman is pregnant and she's seen an OB, and she complains about low extremity swelling, shortness of breath with minimal activity, or shortness of breath while laying flat in the bed at night. These may not necessarily be considered red flag symptoms because just being pregnant 
can actually cause you to have those symptoms, right? But if I see a patient in the clinic as a cardiologist who comes to me, of course, who is not pregnant because I don't tend to see pregnant women often and tells me all of this, those red flags will be going off in my head. This patient likely has heart failure. I need to do more. So if we're saying that pregnant women could have this and it can be normal, it makes it a little bit challenging for the provider to say, I think you may be at high risk for heart failure. So now your provider has to have a high index of suspicion that that's what's going on, and they have to consider additional testing. Right now, the guidelines from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology um, leans on a particular algorithm called the CVD Toolkit. It goes through a series of questions and risk factors, and if you have four or more of those, then it recommends you consider testing, starting with an electrocardiogram, which is an ECG, and then a blood test. One of the things we wanted to answer is, do these symptoms really discriminate? So in our project, we first started a pilot study, and we basically gathered symptoms among pregnant and postpartum women. And we found about 60% or more of pregnant women without any cardiac issues actually have the symptoms that we're talking about lower extremity swelling, shortness of breath with exertion, which tells us that this might not necessarily be helpful. So if you go down that pathway by the toolkit, first test is an electrocardiogram, which is ECG for short. The ECG by itself cannot help you make a diagnosis of heart failure. It may show you some signs of electrical abnormalities about around the heart, but not enough for heart failure. Now, going back to this AI algorithm that was developed, the ECG is a very simple test, non-invasive, can be performed in 10 seconds or less. If we can take this data and use that to predict the likelihood of heart failure, how efficient will that be? You know, that would be quick, reduces the need for additional expensive testing, can easily be done in the outpatient clinic, can be ordered by your OB, and now with the advent of digital technologies like a smartwatch or a digital stethoscope that can record ECGs, you can pretty much do this even in non-clinical settings. So we thought that using the ECG data will be ideal because this is already in the pathway of clinical care and we can use that to predict heart failure. So in our pilot study, the one we did here in the US, we enrolled patients from Mayo Jacksonville, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, as well as a prenatal clinic in downtown Jacksonville. And we recorded ECG data, the standard one, as well as the portable ECGs among these women, as well as collecting symptom data. And we found out that the effectiveness of this algorithm for identifying who has cardiomyopathy or not was just truly remarkable. Using the 12 lead ECG data, it had a perfect discrimination, identifying all six women who had cardiomyopathy because we got an echocardiogram on all of these women as well. And it also correctly identified those who did not compared to using a combination of their symptoms and, you know, the typical clinical pathway. Now, for those of us without expertise in cardiovascular medicine, can you explain why the echocardiogram is the test of choice? The echocardiogram is considered the gold standard for identifying cardiac dysfunction. 
So cardiac dysfunction is something that we can actually measure on the echocardiogram that shows us how well the pumping ability of the heart is. And we measure this in something we call like a left ventricular ejection fraction. Um, in clinical practice, the echocardiogram is our test of choice for evaluating cardiac function. And I would say it does a really good job in telling you who has what and doesn't. It is also the basis on which we um, start different therapies for treating cardiac dysfunction based on our guidelines. So this is what we will do in routine clinical practice. Thank you so much. Tell me a little bit more about then taking this work to Nigeria. Nigeria. Yes. Okay. So I will jump in and talk a little bit about the Nigeria study. So we decided to expand the study to Nigeria because there is a unique form of heart failure that happens during pregnancy and the postpartum period called peripartum cardiomyopathy. The etiology of this condition is believed to be multifactorial, but based on studies, we are learning that it tends to be more common among Black women. Some studies here in the U.S. have shown up to a 16-fold higher incidence of peripartum cardiomyopathy among Black women compared to white women. Also, studies in predominantly Black populations also have a higher prevalence. When looking at the literature and the data out there, Nigeria actually has the highest reported incidence of peripartum cardiomyopathy, estimated as one in 100 live births. So our thoughts are that, could we evaluate this tool in a very high risk population like Nigeria, where we are likely to see um, a more common occurrence of this condition? And can this AI algorithm identify what has cardiomyopathy or not? So that's how the Nigeria study got started. So we started enrolling um, participants in August of 2022. And so far, as of last week, we had enrolled 700 out of an estimated 1,000 study participants. And so far, the study is going well. I think women are receptive to it. The fact that, you know, all we have to do is record an ECG. And we're also um, taking the opportunity to record ECGs with portable devices as well. Tell us a little bit more about the portable devices. So the portable devices we are using is a digital stethoscope. It is able to record a single lead ECG, as well as what we call a phonocardiogram, which is heart sounds. There are some studies that have shown that with the phonocardiogram, we can also predict other cardiac pathologies like heart valve disease. We can also hear a moment better or more clearly than when you place your regular stethoscope on the chest. With the single lead ECG, the Mayo-developed AI ECG algorithm to detect cardiac dysfunction has actually been modified to use just that single lead ECG. And that has also been shown to be predictive and helpful in identifying cardiomyopathy. We have um, two articles that have been published showing that as well. The nice thing about using the digital stethoscope is that you're also able to get near real-time AI predictions as opposed to when we use the 12 lead ECG, the data has to still be uploaded to the cloud and then processed and then the predictions come back, which sometimes might take a little time. But if you're thinking in the context of seeing a patient in a country like Nigeria with limited resources and you have a data, I mean, a device 
with edge computing capabilities. You place it on the chest, connect it to a smart device, a smartphone, and you're able to get almost real-time AI predictions of what to do next. I think that this could be a game changer. So that's one of the portable devices we're using. The other one we're using, it's a very small little device, looks like a, a tiny tablet, rectangular device. You place your fingers on it and you can record a six-lead ECG. And we're in the process of looking to see whether we can use that device to also predict cardiac dysfunction. The nice thing about that device is it's very user-friendly. So a number of our patients here in the U.S. have one at home. So sometimes if they're worried about cardiac issues or abnormal heart rhythms, they can actually record an ECG and transmit that to their provider. So we're thinking about settings where the patient is not even in the clinic for you to place a stethoscope on their chest. Can they record an ECG and transmit that to their provider? And can we use that for AI predictions of whether they need to come in or not? Can this be used by community health workers, say a doula? What about women that are not coming into the hospital setting? Can this be used to predict who's high risk and who needs to go to the hospital or not? That's pretty amazing. The phrase game Super changer mind. <laughs> yes. I mean, <laughs> talk about something that that is actually going to make a difference in people's everyday lives. That's very, very cool. What is it about ML that allows us to do that? Okay, so I would see that machine learning or AI basically allows us to make predictions using data or using structured data is what I would put it as. There are some things that may not necessarily be visible to the naked eye, giving the example of the ECG that I told you about. While we get that often routinely, at least in a cardiovascular clinical practice, there's a limit to the types of diagnosis that we can glean from looking at the 12-lead ECG. And just based on, you know, the machine learning models that have been developed even here at Mayo Clinic, we know that these algorithms go a step further than what we're able to glean, you know, by just visualizing or analyzing the ECG data the way that we are trained and can provide us with additional diagnostic predictions that could potentially help our patients. I always try to explain machine learning to my colleagues as, you know, this is just... Um, I describe it as a series of mathematical calculations that goes on on the back end that helps you identify patterns in a data set. And, you know, as much as, you know, as smart as the average physician is, there's only so much that we can process and so much that we can do. Sometimes some of the subtle changes of patterns in this data might not necessarily raise our eyebrow or give us cause for concern. But with this machine learning models, they're able to identify the subtle changes, as you may put it, that are not visible to the naked eye, but may have an impact in patients' clinical outcomes. And if we can leverage this, we can improve our diagnostic abilities as physicians and improve the care that we provide to our patients. That is a fantastic description. Thank you. I feel like every time I, I talk to somebody, I get a little bit more nuance and another way of telling that story. So I'm excited about that. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> what lessons have you learned leading a project like this? The answer is we have learned a lot 
just in the process of trying to initiate this project and also conducting the project. I think from um, a structural standpoint, working with the research team here at Mail, we've kind of learned about the potential gaps in translating some of these digital technologies, as well as you know our research practices to a whole different country and to a place you know, or low resource setting like Nigeria. We've had to have multiple meetings with different stakeholders here at Mayo and also in Nigeria to figure out how to get this project off the ground. So it really was a huge learning opportunity for all of us figuring all of these things out. What are the barriers? You know, what is the equivalent of the FDA in Nigeria? You know, who do we need to get permissions from to use devices like this? And it also goes beyond even the clinical and research space. It also goes into the technology industry as well. When we started to uh, put this together and we started trainings for our staff on ground in Nigeria on, you know, these devices, most of them function with the software, right? Because the device connects to a smartphone or a tablet, but there needs to be an app for this to work. And in the process, we realized that some of these apps, which to us might be ubiquitous, you just go onto your app store and you download it actually not available to be downloaded in Nigeria because they don't have permissions there. So we are wondering, oh, why is this the case? How do we get these permissions? Who approves this? So we had to kind of like learn other potential ways to get this apps. So the way around that that we figured out was we had iPads, tablets that were purchased in the U.S., and we had to pre-download these apps and then ship them to Nigeria so that they could be used. And with um, Mayo's technology through the mobile device management, we were able to manage those devices in Nigeria to allow them be used for the purpose of the research. So as we started the research, I want to say maybe about three or four months into the project, one of the apps is now available on the Nigerian App Store. I don't want to take credit for that. I don't know how that is. But, you know, there is also a growing need that sometimes some of the things we think are readily available to us in developed countries might be a whole different story in a different country. And, you know, people also learning, we get a lot of international patients here at Mayo when they go back home, some of the things that we're able to provide, even using telemedicine, there might be challenges in getting, you know, that care to them. So that was another thing that we learned in the uh, in the course of this project. The other thing I also want to point out is cultural practices and religious leanings also could potentially affect healthcare. So in the northern part of Nigeria, which tends to be predominantly Muslim. It also has um, a culture where the woman really relies heavily on her husband to make clinical care decisions. So even participating in a study as this, which is, you know, considered a non-invasive um, intervention, sometimes women need permission from their husbands to participate. And that has been a bit of a challenge for us in enrolling because often the husbands are reluctant to have their wives participate, especially if the cardiologist or the ECG technician is male, 
So that's also some of the things that we are running into and learning. How can we ensure that we incorporate men in the studies? Can we hire a female, you know, research associate to record the CCGs, a female ECG technician? Getting a female cardiologist is probably a tougher one. And also, you know, in, in the teaching hospitals that we're working with, even our obstetricians are also male. So a lot of challenges from that standpoint in also encouraging women to participate in the study. And it's just so interesting too, because I mean, there's been certainly more awareness and education around cultural competence in clinical settings over the last, certainly the last decade. Um, although I know the work started long before that, but there's there's more awareness of it. And, and yet anytime we embark on a research project, we, uh, we have some, some lessons and we figure out how to best uh, be part of a community and respect that, that community. Yes. I know we only have a few minutes left. What additional guidance would you give to colleagues who have not been engaged in the AI ML space who might want to explore it, cardiology or other practice areas? I think just like with everything that we do in medicine, we're usually open to learning more, right? What is the latest evidence out there? That's what, you know, CMEs, which is continuing medical education is for, for us to learn about what are the newer things or novel therapies that can improve the care that we provide to our patients. And, you know, how can we become better clinicians? And I think that that is the same with AI and machine learning. I think every physician should be interested in learning more about what is out there and how it can benefit our patients. I do think that we should have a healthy skepticism though for some of those models because, you know, like we know, a lot of models that are trained on existing data have the potential to be biased. So if you train a model based on biased data, there is a likelihood that you could get biased predictions. And in the cardiovascular space, like we, we've talked about, a lot of our large clinical trial data sets are also you know, predominantly men. So before these interventions or models can be rolled out for broad scale use, it is important that they are validated broadly in multiple populations among women or in the specific population that you want to deploy it in. Apart from validating it, implementation studies are also important, which is kind of like what we're learning from the Nigeria study. Can you take this model to a different hospital and implement it? Do they have the correct infrastructure? Now we're learning that there's also differences between how ECG data is stored and processed. So do you need to develop something in the background to process this data to eliminate artifact and noise before you run it through these models? Will these predictions remain robust over time? There's a lot that we don't know. Do they need to invest financially to have the right infrastructure to store digital data before processing it? We're also going to be figuring that out as we go. And ultimately, with everything we do in clinical medicine, before we take this as the next best thing for our patients, we need clinical trials. We need evidence that if we make this change, does it actually impact patient outcomes? Can we improve their health? Can we reduce the risk of dying? So apart from just the you know medical knowledge that comes from it, 
does it actually benefit the patient? And we answer those with clinical trials. So I still believe that AI yeah, and machine learning is in it's in its um infancy when it comes to how we're going to use it in clinical practice. But I think that every physician should stay aware and up to date on what's out there. Thank you so much for that. Part of me is just so curious to see what happens. Is this going to be a rapidly accelerating thing where right now, like you said, it's in its infancy. It's not deployed across clinical practice widely yet, but in five years, is everyone going to look back and go, I can't believe only five years ago, that's what we were saying. It'll be interesting to follow. I agree with you. And I don't know the answer to that. Although I'm a bit more optimistic that this is something that might roll out rapidly. It's just like if you think back, you know, just before the start of the pandemic, we didn't know how quickly we would accelerate into telemedicine. And now Zoom has become a thing. Like almost everybody knows what Zoom is. Three years ago, nobody knew what Zoom was you know, and now telemedicine is the thing. We have, you know, a good number of our clinic visits with patients actually opting for this option. So there was that rapid acceleration in adopting this technology and making sure that most hospitals have the right infrastructure, you know, internet stability and everything and getting like webcams to be able to do this. So I do think it's possible but we don't know right until we go through it. Mm -hmm. There's also, you know, people that are of the school of thought that we're kind of like right at the edge of a new industrial revolution where we start to change how we do things. You know, there was a time when, you know, a lot of emphasis was on, you know, manufacturing and steel plants and, you know, steam-based engines. And then we kind of transition into automobiles and then we transition to the era of the internet, right? And that also kind of like rapidly developed. And there's always a concern anytime we're at the edge of a new industrial revolution, which people believe that this is going to be the era of basically machine learning, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and that that is where we're going. And people are kind of worried, oh, what does this mean for the average person? Are you going to lose your job? Is the physician going to be replaced by a robot? We always have all of these fears. And we had all of those fears to when we kept transitioning across industrial revolutions. And what we are realizing is that our role will evolve over time. I don't think that robots will replace us. But I do think that some of these models can improve what we do whether it's in taking care of our patients, patient outcomes, patient health, or even outside of the healthcare industry. And we have to learn to evolve with it because whether or not we like it, it's already here. I mean, if you watch Netflix, it already uses AI to predict and tell you what to watch next. It's so commonplace now that we don't even know it's doing that. If you use a you know personal assistant on your cell phone, you're already using AI. So we're already transitioning into that era but in the healthcare space, it still sounds novel to us, but I think it's coming. So we just need to be ready. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you have just a couple of minutes, I like ending every conversation with a couple of big wonderings, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with AI. So hopefully you're game. The first question is we talk quite a bit about trust. AI or not AI, how do you know you can really trust a person? Oh my gosh, that is a tough question. It's just like, how do you know if you can trust your doctor? And I think that maybe doctors kind of have a little bit of an edge up in that space because the, the general attitude of most people is that of trust. You come to your physician expecting that they have the right answers and that they can help you. 
So maybe physicians might not have to work as hard in that space to gain trust, the initial trust from their patients. But I do think that we have to maintain trust because patient can lose trust in you if they feel like, you know, they're not getting better or they're not getting the right advice. So now bringing AI into the conversation, I did mention earlier that we have to have a healthy skepticism before we start to rely or trust these models. We need evidence that they work. We need evidence that it's applicable to the patient population that we see and that we take care of. And over time, we can build that trust in how reliable this model is. And I don't believe that AI should take away our clinical acumen or how we make decisions for patients. They are supposed to help augment our diagnostic abilities. They are also supposed to help like a clinical decision support tool. So they still the role for the patient and the clinician together to make a decision that is best for them. AI is not going to take that away. Thank you so much. What problem do you have, big, small, personal, that you wish you had a tool to solve? That's on that tough one. Because honestly, I want to talk about my project because that's like my passion right now, right? I want to be able to solve, um, should I say, the lack of access to a heart specialist in a place like Nigeria. Even here in the U.S., you know, young women are presumed to be healthy, especially if you're pregnant, healthy enough to become pregnant. And we don't see the role of a heart specialist in caring for that woman. And there is a new field now called cardioobstetrics, which basically is trying to emphasize that there's a huge role for cardiovascular care in an obstetric patient, because what we're learning is cardiovascular disease, unfortunately, is the leading cause of death during this time period. So if there was something that I needed to solve is how do we make or create more equitable access to cardiovascular care for pregnant and postpartum women? Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Adria. This was fun. I can't believe one hour went by so fast. 